I think I'm on. Am I on? Oh, looks like I am. The screen looks a little... Oh, looks all grunky. Trying to get this thing to work. I got a, I got a freaking lens flare. I feel like I'm in a damn J.J. Abrams movie. You guys, you guys know what I'm talking about. Freaking J.J. Abrams, am I right? That guy, he loves his lens flares. So one thing he loves, it's a goddamn lens flare. So I have one of those. It looks like I'm trying to change it. angle. I don't know. I'm not doing a very good job. Sorry, guys. Uh, didn't do a show yesterday. Didn't do a stream because I was just feeling a little drained and I didn't want to force it. So I gave myself some time to just vibe. So I hope that's okay with everyone. But now I'm back and I'm ready to take on the news of the day and whatever you guys want to talk about. Uh, I would turn the light out, but it's very dark in here. It's not a lot of windows in this apartment. So uh, even with the sun out, it would be you wouldn't be able to see me if I didn't have the, the light on. Uh, so the other day, Matt Iglesias got, uh, had a classic epic, one of his trolling moments where he said, uh, I think Trump is actually pretty smart. He's smarter than people give him credit for. And that made people mad, and it became a big argument. And it made me really feel of two minds about it, because I feel like there's a lot of evidence that the man is an idiot. That the, At the very level, he is wildly, wildly intellectually lazy and uninterested in applying any like intelligence he might have to anything, because he assumes he already knows everything. And, like, that's... I don't know at one level at what level can you separate that from just being dumb? I mean, because functionally it makes you incapable of applying knowledge anyway. But today he had uh, uh, some lines that really made people be like, "Wow, I think this determines the case once and for all." And these are some amazing quotes I want to read. He was in Allentown today. This is the way he said. He said, "We have the best testing in the world. Could that testing be?" Could be the testing is frankly overrated. Maybe it is overrated. But whenever they start yelling, we want more, we want more, then we do more. And they say, we want more. When you test, you have a case. And when you test, you find something was wrong with people. If we didn't do any testing, we wouldn't have few cases. We would have very few cases. So people are like, God damn, what the hell? Uh, he's, he's, doesn't have object permanence. He doesn't realize that you're not reducing the number of people who have it, you're only reducing your, your knowledge of the people who have it. So, people point that and say, that's evidence that he's dumb. And that's what I thought at first, too. But honestly, I thought about it a little bit more, and he's really just coming from a different premise. He's coming, what, what, a lot of what happens with Trump is that he is coming from a premise, one of what makes him dumb, and honestly it's not so much dumb as unnecessary for him, is that because he has such a unique relationship with the press and with the public, he doesn't have to play certain games. He doesn't have to hide certain premises. He doesn't have to be disingenuous. He can be direct. 
Uh, and that leads him to come at things from an angle that like the media class is baffled by. And so they see this and they're like, what an idiot he is. But think of it this way. He is coming from the realization, from the knowledge, from the understanding that all the people at the highest levels have and that is slowly dawning on everyone around us is that, that there's nothing to be done. That there's no cavalry coming. They're not going to do any kind of system to reduce the spread of this disease because it would require allowing people to live outside of market relationships that are defined in like a country that is a service economy. That means that since we're not going to change that relationship and the only way to put money back into the system is to recirculate capital in the market, then we're going to open back up. We're going to let everybody back out. We have to. There's no alternative because there's no, uh, there's, there's no willingness or even ability at the highest levels to put together the infrastructure to replace the market. So we're going to go back anyway. And there's not going to be some wholesale testing and tracing. They're not going to be quarantining anything. So if we all, if you understand that, which Trump does, and which a lot of people in the media are either lying to themselves about or are too stupid to understand, then why, why test people? It only undermines their consumer confidence to know how many positive cases there are or how many people are dying from it. If we have all collectively decided that we have given up what is the fucking point of maintaining some uh, uh, tally? The number isn't going anywhere. It's just going to go to make it harder to convince people to leave their houses, which you need them to do. Because the scary thing for a lot of for the economy people is you can reopen, but it won't make people necessarily go back out to the places. Like Sweden has not done any orders for sheltered place or anything like that. And yes, they have a much higher rate of infection than the rest of Scandinavia. But what's important to note is that they have a similar drop in people going out and retail and shit and restaurants and bars. They didn't need an order. People don't want to get it. So you need to get over that. One way is like toughen people up to the mass death that's going to happen and say, don't be afraid to let your body die, all that stuff. Oh, there's more to life than, than mere living. You know, there's the Darden stock uh, buyback provisions. So that fucking Red Lobster stays in business. And there's no reason to have the number. So he's right. He's right. People need to be as ignorant as possible about what's really happening with this thing in order to get the economy back going. We have to be in complete denial. If anything, we should stop counting altogether and make it illegal to tell people who have it. That would be the way to like really dive into what is now what we're going to do. What's the point of having these numbers just to feel anxious about them? Like we are not fixing. There's no cavalry. There's no fixing this. No one at the top levels have the interest, ability, willingness. There's no challenge to them from anyone else. So we're going to go through with this. We're going to accept the new normal of people dying from this disease in huge numbers. And if that's the case, knowing the number only undermines our recovery efforts. Because I think a lot of people who are still indoors and are horrified at all these people leaving their houses, I think you got to realize something. Like a lot of people, everyone is, is dealing with stress from this change. 
You know, it's like, obviously, it's not like, you know, being uh, in a war zone or anything. It's very, but you're talking about incredibly pampered people in general, Americans. So any kind of restriction is felt very hardly because they haven't had many. So they don't, they're not used to it and they bridle at it and then they have to deal with it. Now, for a lot of liberals and leftists who pride themselves on their community mindedness and their uh, intelligence and their ability to recognize and listen to expert opinions, staying home carries with it some sense of uh, satisfaction. You know, staying home, even though it sucks and you can't, you'd rather go out, yes, but I'm a good person because I'm indoors. And so that is, that's a little benefit. You see it when people clap at seven o'clock. They're like, yes, I am, you know, involved in a project conservative people and even apolitical people do not have that relationship with this shit. They're not getting that benefit. They're not getting that like psychic identity boost of being like, oh my God, I am uh, a good person because I'm staying indoors. Because they don't buy any of that stuff. They don't buy the community mindedness for one thing. They think that's uh, frankly uh, kind of fruity, as Homer Simpson would say. They don't buy what experts tell them because they assume experts are on the, on the other side. So they think they're getting scammed and rooked and conned by staying indoors. And so they have to find something else. And getting mad about that, that's their version of you're feeling good about staying indoors. But all, all of it's coping with the fact that this whole thing was supposed to build time, buy time, to prepare, pr prepare a contingency plan that maximized human lives this the, the say that like that privilege saving lives and it didn't happen and it can't happen now so like trump is being dumb because he's not playing the game the way it's supposed to be and he's uh he's living at a level of abstraction that just speaks his it really just speaks to his sociopathy I mean, like, a lot of the stuff that we think of as Trump being dumb is just him not recognizing other people as having interiority. You know, and that's not technically the same thing. But really what he's just doing is he's recognizing a deeper reality, which is that this number doesn't mean anything. These numbers aren't going to help. We're not going to use them to save lives. They're only going to make it harder for us to reassert a normality in which this death is part and parcel, like car accidents or gun, uh, gun deaths, or anything else. And that is what's so horrifying to see people, see these right-wingers going like, uh, you know, there's more important things than just clinging to life. Life has, life has to have meaning. And what's so annoying is, is that that's 100% true. And it really would have been nice to have some of that sentiment floating anywhere in the cultural ether after, I don't know, 9-11, when a little bit of perspective on 3,000 deaths might have prevented us from killing a million more. But that fit, you know, the, the, the emerging need for a replacement for the Soviet Union to justify, like, the defense Keynesian state and uh, uh, the, uh, the American military you know, global hegemony. Now, all of a sudden, we have perspective on the meaning of life when it means that caring too much about life will, instead of lead us to insanely attack everybody in the world and spend trillions of dollars, it'll lead us to, oh no, not go out to eat. 
not go to TGI Fridays. Oh, dear God. Not to go to Red Robin and get the Blorch Burger with extra Glorp sauce. And so that's what's so disgusting because they're evoking a truth. They're evoking a reality of this like disenchanted and spiritually deadened time. That we are morbidly fixated on our physical lives and extending them because it's all we have. Because we don't think that there's anything else. Not just beyond life, but even in it, beyond physical pleasure and mere distraction. And we need to change that. We need to like resacralize life at some level. I'm not talking about like reinstituting a religious uh, you know, doctrine or, or state uh, theology, but I mean just like creating a value to social, social interaction. Like building social meaning. That has to be part of the equation. And these people are invoking that idea on the for the benefit of the Darden Restaurant Group and fucking Yum Brands and the continued viability of this just disgusting, wheezing exploitation machinery. It's very sad. Because then you have to say, no, lives mean something. But you're still, you're still at the end of the day, you're reifying that spiritual deadness. You're saying, no, all we have is our lives. And it's like, we should be willing to sacrifice, but for something worthwhile. We should be willing to sacrifice for something, for building something. They're asking us to sacrifice to sustain an unsustainable system of misery. Spiritual and, and material death. It's very depressing. So that's why those guys are, to me, the most disgusting people of this entire thing. Are the people who, wanna, who want to uh, exploit everyone's like thwarted yearning to be heroes. Everyone's thwarted yearning to seek meaning through action. And to say, yes, what that means, that, that feeling in your heart is, take a fucking blunderbuss to the state capitol until they let you back into fucking Applebee's. That's not good. That's just, that's more, you're, you're, you're cheapening life even more uh, by saying that the material mere distractions that have robbed of us are, of any spiritual understanding are more important than any human could be. I mean, my God, I can't think of a more nihilistic and monstrous piece of, uh, and, and the idea that anyone who believes that they want to bring religion back to this country, that they think, like, we've lost spiritual values and that we need to restore them and is saying die for Darden brands is nauseating honestly die for Darden brands folks die for Barden brands Darden brands bargain brands So how are you guys doing? Shop until you drop indeed. God, remember I remember being a kid and like even as a child recognizing the over heavy handedness of like corp of like anti consumer culture, you know, like adbuster shit. And it's like the the analysis that you get from that is not very strong and it doesn't really point you towards meaningful action because it gets so fixated on, you know, cultural stuff. But god damn, it is very hard not to see uh, 
the the death drive manifested by it directly through the need to consume. Like we're literally willing to die in order to consume. And it's like Dawn of the Dead where he's got all the zombies tottering around in the fucking mall. It's like, you know, it's harder to roll your eyes at that. Like we really have reached a point where every satirical observation and exaggeration that has come before is now just happening at, at hyperspeed. Just like at any moment, anything you ever thought was over the top in some satire is going to appear before you. First, it's Dawn of the Dead. Next, Death Race 2000. Get ready for it. It'll be Death Race 2020. I did see Colorado Space, and I really enjoyed the fact that when he was kind of losing it and he was reverting to the voice of his father, he was 100% doing Donald Trump. That was pretty funny. Talk about Lincoln and his generals. Oh, boy. Poor Lincoln. He got... It's just a bad... Uh, he got a, dealt a bad hand. A lot of the cream of the... Uh, a lot of the cream of the officer corps were, were, uh, were Southerners. That did not mean... Uh, uh, Lee, necessarily. Lee was fucking overrated. Uh, I mean, he looked good compared to the oafs that he was fighting against. But uh, Lincoln gets credit for learning on the job and... And giving guys uh, promotions who deserved it. I cannot spare this man. He fights, he said about Grant. Uh, Lincoln did have very handsome generals. In fact, the handsomer ones were generally the least least competent. Uh, that little that little popinjay, that little Napoleon himself, uh, George McClellan. God, don't get me started. There's no worse record, I think, among American military leaders outside of, like, Benedict Arnold than George McClellan. How bad is it to completely botch the job uh, the whole time undermining the president and then actually run against him on a fucking platform of prematurely ending the war that you fucked up to begin with? Amazing. That fucking ball's on that guy. Grant was not as drunk as his reputation uh, might make you believe. That is largely propaganda, thanks to the Dunning School, those swine who had to... There's a reason that you that Grant is remembered for being a drunk and for being corrupt. Uh, and that's because of the Dunning School and the need to slander anyone associated with uh, Reconstruction. And he was one of the most uh, effective prosecutors of Reconstruction we had. Uh, so, he, so his presidency is reduced to him being drunk and being corrupt. The corruption is funny because, yes, of course, there was tons of corruption. Uh, he was a political naif and he depended on 
advisors and friends who had their own agendas, uh, uh, common among the disgusting, uh, cynical, uh, pro-corporate uh, Republicans who uh, took over after Lincoln was killed. Um, but he was not personally corrupt, and more importantly, the corruption during his camp during his presidency was par for the course for Victorian presidents. They were all fucking crooked. If you want to look through the list of late nineteenth century uh, scandals and rings and, and and fucking confidence games that go into the White House, they extend all the way through the fucking uh, turn of the century until the Progressive Era. Fucking, and then of course start up again with like Teapot Dome and shit. Fucking um, Benjamin Harrison was like cartoonishly corrupt. But they remember him as a drunk and a, as corrupt because it served that narrative. Uh, the drunk stuff was mostly really from when he was uh, stationed in California after, uh, after the Mexican-American War, uh, when he was basically traumatized from his combat experience and completely alone and bored and lonely, and he just kind of drank. And that was where his like reputation for alcoholism uh, was most established. He did not drink nearly as much during the war as his reputation would make anyone assume. Yeah, and that's another thing to remember to you about like anti-corruption campaigns is that a lot of the times they become covers for uh, for reactionary neutralization of popular involvement in politics. Like, I guarantee you, uh, everyone in New York wishes they still had Tammany Hall around. Maybe they could get some fucking subway services. Maybe we wouldn't have more people dying of this fucking thing than anybody in the, in the country or the world. If there was somebody you could call, if, if somebody's cousin's cousin had a job somewhere that actually, like, connected you practically to a level of political uh, leverage. Gotta get rid of that. We replaced it with this bloodless fucking... Uh, transactional technocracy that ends up, wouldn't you know it, only serving people with the most money and, and uh, corporate interests with the deepest pockets. Yeah, George Washington Plunkett, honest graft, baby. I mean, it wasn't ideal, and it had its own reactionary elements to it. Uh, and there were socialists who always fought against Tammany Hall while it was around. But it wasn't destroyed by socialism. It was destroyed by good governance programs propagated by mostly urban middle class people, which is how the machines in all the big cities got broken, basically. Uh, Do-gooders, who did not replace it with, like, citizen control. They replaced it with... Uh, with meritocratic influence, which ends up being uh, just graft, but only from the top. Cutting off any grassroots connection between governing uh, and uh, uh, resources. There were no Marxist organizations in the United States of any size, I don't think, uh, uh, in the Civil War, largely because Marxism really wasn't a thing yet. It was still, uh, you know, being being created 
what you had were like organizations that were more or less influenced by Marx personally since he was still alive. Uh, so uh, you had the International Working Men's Association, the first international. Uh, but, you know, its influence was relatively weak at that point. Um, but you did have communists. You had, you had communists, guys who weren't Marxists who, because they personally knew him and, like most people who knew him, had some sort of uh, conflict with him. Like August Willich, my boy, my guy, the Prussian commie. Uh, Marx sent, on behalf of the International Working Men's Association, a letter to congratulate Lincoln uh, on his re-election in 1864. Uh, they didn't correspond. He gave he sent a letter back in thanks, but it wasn't like they were correspondents. Like, dear Carl, uh, you know, I just I, we just won the Battle of Gettysburg. I'm so excited. You know, it wasn't like that. I'll read. I'll read the letter though. Let me read the letter. And, you know, it was signed by a bunch of people. He's just one of them. Uh, Sir, we congratulate the American people upon your re-election by a large majority. If resistance to the slave power was the reserved watchword of your first election, the triumphant war cry of your re-election is death to slavery. From the commencement of the titanic American strife, the working men of Europe felt instinctively that the Star-Spangled Banner carried their destiny, the destiny of their class. The contest for the territories, which opened the dire epoe, would, was it not to decide whether the virgin soil of immense tracts should be wedded to the labor of the emigrant or prostituted by the tramp of the slave driver? When an oligarchy of 300,000 slaveholders dared to inscribe, for the first time in the annals of the world, slavery on the banner of armed revolt, when on the very spots where hardly a century ago the idea of one great democratic republic had first sprung up, once the first Declaration of Rights of Man was issued and the first impulse given to the European Revolution of the 18th century, when on those very spots counter-revolution with systematic thoroughness gloried in rescinding the ideas entertained by the time of the formation of the old constitution and maintained slavery to be a beneficent institution. Indeed, the old solution of the great problem of the relation of capital to labor and cynically proclaimed property in man the cornerstone of the new edifice. Then the working classes of Europe understood at once, even before the fantastic partisanship of the upper classes for the Confederate gentry had given its dismal warning, that the slaveholders' rebellion was to sound the toxin for a general holy crusade of property against labor, and that for the men of labor, with their hopes for the future, even their past conquests were at stake in that tremendous conflict on the other side of the Atlantic. Everywhere the elf... Everywhere they bore, therefore, patiently the hardships imposed upon them by the cotton crisis, opposed enthusiastically the pro-slavery intervention of their betters, and for most parts of Europe, contributed their quota of blood to the good cause. While the working men, the true political powers of the North, allowed slavery to defile their own republic, while before the Negro mastered and sold without his concurrence, they boasted at the highest prerogative of the white-skinned laborer to sell himself and choose his own master, they were unable to attain the true freedom of labor or to support their European brethren in their struggle for emancipation, but this barrier to progress has been swept off by the Red Sea of civil war. The working men of Europe feel that sure that, as the American War of Independence initiated a new era of ascendancy for the middle class, so the American anti-slavery war will do for the working classes. They consider it an earnest 
of the epoch to come that it fell to the lot of Abraham Lincoln, the single-minded son of the working class, to lead his country through the matchless struggle for the rescue of an enchained race and the reconstruction of a social world. Signed on behalf of the International Working Men's Association, the Central Committee. And you got a whole bunch of guys in here, including the boy himself. And uh, they got a response uh, from Charles Francis Adams. Yes, the son of John Quincy Adams, who was the uh, ambassador to uh, the court of St. James, a.k.a. the Great Britain, during the Civil War. Because at that point, the International uh, Working Men's Association was headquartered in London. Sir, I am directed to inform you that the address of the Central Council of your association, which was duly transmitted through the legation to the President of the United States, has been received by him. So far as the sentiments expressed by it are personal, they are accepted by him with a sincere and anxious desire that he may be able to prove himself not unworthy of the confidence which has been recently extended to him by his fellow citizens and by so many of the friends of humanity and progress throughout the world. The government of the United States has a clear consciousness that its policy neither is nor could be reactionary, but at the same time it adheres to the course which it adopted at the beginning, of abstaining everywhere from propagandism and unlawful intervention. It strives to do equal and exact justice to all states and to all men, and it relies upon the beneficial results of that effort for support at home and for respect and goodwill throughout the world. Nations do not exist for themselves alone, but to promote the welfare and happiness of mankind by benevolent intercourse and example. It is in this relation that the United States regard their cause in the present conflict with slavery, maintaining insurgents as the cause of human nature, and that they derive new encouragements to to persevere from the testimony of the working men of Europe that the national attitude is favored with their enlightened approval and earnest sympathies. I have the honor to be, sir, your obedient servant, Charles Francis Adams. So that was it. That's the correspondence. Like, they didn't write letters to each other. Um, but yes, this, they were not talking out of their ass. Uh, it's actually very interesting. The upper classes of Europe were, of course, instantly and immediately uh, sympathetic to the South because that's where they got their fucking shit. That's where they got their cotton that was the engine of the early Industrial Revolution. More important than energy because at that point they were still using steam and shit. It, uh, locally produced stuff. Nobody was importing it. What you needed to be imported was the raw material to make the shit to actually have capital formation. So they loved that. They lo- oh, and it was so it was so cheap because of the slavery. They loved it, and so there was a real move in in specifically France and Europe, the big boys, uh, and with Russia also, uh, to recognize the Confederacy as a legitimate government, which would allow them to do something like intervene on their behalf in the Civil War. And the Confederates tried very hard to make that happen. And they had a lot of sympathy at the upper levels of government, including the prime ministers. Uh, I know Louis Napoleon was dying to recognize the Confederacy. Hell, he sent Maximilian to take over Mexico uh, behind the United States' back, uh, which was only possible because of the Civil War. He didn't want that to end. He didn't want the Confederacy to go away. In fact, if they helped them win, then they would accept uh, Maximilian's rule in Mexico uh, as a fait accompli and as like uh, a, a quid pro quo for recognition. But the working class, the actual people who were suffering the most from uh, the dearth of cotton, the people in the mill towns of Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, they were violently against the Confederacy and were com- basically united in support of the Union. 
And there were huge demonstrations, protests all throughout the Civil War, in, the, in Britain specifically, uh, to keep those fucking uh, toffee-noticed motherfuckers from throwing in with the Confederacy. Because they recognized that, you know, this is about capital and labor, and if they think they can enslave the blacks, what the hell makes you think that at some future point they might not find it necessary in that moment to enslave whites too? Uh, which is always was the case. Uh, and like the more honest confet uh, uh, Southern uh, propagandists and apologists for slavery uh, actually made that point. Uh, the guy uh, in, in the book Cannibals All, uh, the guy Fitzhugh is his name, he wrote a book that basically said that um, inequality in human ability is inherent uh, and it, is, it doesn't actually have to do with race at all. Like, it's, it's, it's gradiated through all races and all social classes and it's all based on a natural order. And so there'll always be, always going to be bosses and, and, and workers. What's the best relationship between a boss and a worker? It is a master-slave relationship because it implies mutual obligation. A wage-labor relationship is, by its definition, more inhumane because the boss does not have any uh, obligation to, to see to the health, livelihood, and uh, viability of uh, their workers because they can always get new ones. And he said that leads to instability. It leads to the democracy falling apart uh, because of populism and demagoguery and attempts to like redistribute uh, because you are creating a situation where people are left to their own devices. Uh, and so he said to the people who say, to the Northerners who say, you know, slavery is fine because it's, it's, it's black. It's, 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 it's just, it's on black skin. He said, no, ideally it would extend to whites too. Because you have the same problem in the North. It would only be worse if it was, if you allowed uh, uh, blacks to not be slaves and made them work uh, for, for wages. But you have the same problems and with the same solution. And most, they didn't want to spook their northern neighbors, so they didn't say that too loudly. He's one of the few who did. But it was, people understood it. And it was one of the things that made uh, wage laborers hostile to slavery. And it was the, it was the, it was the app, the, I mean, it was the fact that the union was able to fight well enough to prevent uh, Europe from like just throwing the dice because the, North, the South looks stronger militarily, but also it was domestic pressure that kept them from uh, siding with the Confederacy because they recognized the class character. Uh, funnily enough, a guy who had sympathy for the Confederacy and kind of said they might have been in the right, uh, Bakunin. Something about that, that liberal concept in anarchism I don't know. When you have to apply it to real situations, all of a sudden you get spun around sometimes. I'm just saying. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. But Mikhail, Mikhail Bakunin had good things to say about the Confederacy. Let's see if I can find the quote. Nah, I can't find it. Well, anyway, he won. He did. Because he saw, well, he saw it in terms of, like, coercion. 
you know, and then the North is trying to coerce the South into obedience, and that that, you know, and of course it recognizes the reality of, of uh, that after the war, the South, or the North did end up becoming more capitalist, but that was inevitable. How, what are the terms of the capitalism? If, if it's a capitalism where slavery is allowed, that's going to be deformed in a way the capitalism where slavery has been ruled out will not be. I don't know. I don't know what the best books on the Civil War are. I'm sure I haven't read all the best ones. Uh, and there's so many because it's such a heavily studied topic because it's, I think, where a lot of people's, Americans anyway, if they become historians, if they become history fans, they get stuck on the Civil War early. So a lot of them stick around. So I definitely have not read the best ones. Oh, the worst books on the Civil War would be anything by Jeff Shara, the hack fraud son of Michael Shara, whose book, uh, uh, whose book, The Killer Angels, is a Pulitzer Prize winner and a great, uh, a, a great young adult classic that is one of the first books I read about the Civil War that really stuck with me and made me want to read more about it. Um, and his son basically pulled a Brian Herbert. Uh, you know, Christopher Tolkien and wrote sequels to his dad's book with the same characters uh, at different points of the war. Uh, but whereas Michael Shara was pretty clearly sympathetic to the Union uh, and, you know, he saw the human drama and, and he created, tried to create sympathetic, you know, portrayals throughout both sides, but his sympathy is with the Union, you know, and there's a big speech Josh Chamberlain gives to his men about, the, about being an army set on the mission of, uh, you know, setting people free and how that was unique almost in human history. Uh, and then his son, though, writes sequels where the good guys are now, the more sympathetic characters with the more righteous side are the uh, fucking Confederates, which uh, he, wrote a, uh, he wrote an awful book called Gods and Generals, which was turned into generally one of the worst fucking movies I've ever seen. Just dreadful. Three hours of absolute dog shit. And the fact that it's like wildly pro-Confederate is not even the worst part about it. It's three hours long. The acting is uniformly terrible. terrible, And the war scenes are hilariously bad because they always end up doing this is they end up using reenactors, right? Because they already have their own shit. They know how to march in formation. You just film them. But the thing is, is most reenactors are, you know, like, hobbyists, like 45-year-old Americans with, like, beer guts. Whereas the average Civil War soldier from either side was, like, a 19-year-old who weighed about 85 pounds. And seeing these, like, just actuaries and fucking, like, uh, dick sporting goods managers just shooting each other while, like, puffing and trying to get up, like, Mary's Heights at Fredericksburg. Very humorous and not at all immersive. I mean, that's the thing. If there's no corona vaccine, 
they might want to get that information out there earlier, right? Because you're, you're asking, someone asked how blackpilled are people going to get? I mean, to the degree that they need to, to function. And like I said, we're not allowing any alternative to the market. We can only restart the economy by engaging in market transactions. We're not doing enough shit on the internet to make up the shortfall. So we got to get out. And that means, and if there's no, there's no rescue, if there's no vaccine coming, then what is the point of waiting? Why not get it over with? And I know people say overwhelming hospitals and stuff, but like the level of locking down you would have to do to prevent overwhelming a hospital is not uh, viable given the restraints of the economic reality. We need people out. We need these jobs back. We need this shit in order to keep the lights on, keep things moving, keep supply chains going. And that only happens uh, if you're, and you're creating shareholder value. And that only happens if we get used to it. And knowing that there's no help coming will help get people used to it. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we we're seeing like the, the 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 what will happen is we're going to turn first responders into into troops in that there's going to be a, a uh, there's going to be a campaign with a flag of a certain color that's going to stand for uh, nurses and doctors and or you know anyone who works in in the medical field. So there's going to be a flag campaign. They're going to be called our troops. They might even get drafted, who knows. And they're going to be working in big field hospitals in like, you know, college football stadiums or on tender ships or yeah, the decks of aircraft carriers, uh, big fields. Uh, repossessed zoos. And they're just going to pack people in there in tents like they do in Central Park. What's really interesting for me is like, it's, I know it's going to get bad and we're going to have a new normal that is going to be way worse than anybody thought they were going to experience this quickly. And they're not going to be able to fun handle it. But I really don't think that there's any political valence to their anger about it because I really don't think that there are enough people with a common understanding of this situation that could uh, mobilize effectively along an axis that could provide meaningful leverage. So what you're going to have is you're going to have something like 300 million people expressing this wildly new level of alienation, this wildly new level of material uh, scarcity, uh, 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 time that is now devoted entirely to survival or more so, uh, the need for their entertainments to be even more immersive and, 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 uh, and intense to make up for it. The, 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 what, what kind of like civic... What kind of civic myths are we going to have to create to explain how 
we're living in the country that we, the United States of America, as we have always been given to understand it. But this is how we're living. That dissonance is going to have to be reconciled through mental processes that are going to build just cathedrals of, because it's unorganized, because it's not class conscious, just cathedrals of, of neurotic mania. Just like violent, ritualistic, uh, uh, primal belief systems. Q, I think, is just like the first, most extreme uh, expression of a phenomenon that's going to take over the minds of huge sloths of people. And I don't know how that's going to turn out. All I'm saying is that, yeah, all that psychic energy under energy is going to have to go somewhere. Like, you're just steam-heating people who had, like, an expectation that what being an American meant in terms of their material security, comfort, safety, sense of worth, and a lot of it is tied up in that country. And then, pff, it just gets flash-fried out of existence, but they still have the same mythology. And they don't know why it's happening, because there's no coherent understanding of the world that anyone's operating off of. There's only the fragments that they can grab piecemeal from an unsustainably uh, explosive torrent of information. I don't know how people reckon with this. I don't know what kind of new cults are going to form. I mean, they wouldn't be in person because that would go against the current of, of atomization. Uh, Internet-based, but then expressed individually. Uh, mass violence? I don't know. A return to like 70s style uh, guerrilla movements, not political necessarily, but like, or weirdly political, like a, who knows? The only way to vent it off would be something like a war, but war with China is just so vast and inconceivable in many ways. Half the rare earth metals we use to program the microchips for our rockets and stuff come from fucking China. More than half. You know, the funny thing is, is that a show that I never watched and I really should now, like while we're still in quarantine and it's still a fluid situation, is The Fucking Leftovers. Because what happens in The Leftovers, right? 2% of the population just disappears overnight. That's basically what we're doing. And it's like, the, 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 the reason it's such a trauma in the Leftovers universe is because nobody knows where they went or why, right? And we'll know where they went, they died. But we won't know why. We won't know why this was allowed to happen. There will be no coherent, universal, even partially, regionally hegemonic understanding for what happened. And so you will have the same crisis you will have the same sort of sense of crisis, spiritual and material, that you saw in that show, but just along a different axis. Not spiritual, but around like, what, where am I? What country is this? How did this happen? Who let this happen? Who made this happen? That's going to be the providing thought. The people are not going to be able to change anything around them. They're not going to know how to. And so they're going to want someone to blame. And that question is going to become more and more relevant and more and more powerful to them 
Because it's the only way to flee from the reality of what's in front of them. Because people are staying in now. Honestly, it feels like everyone who's still staying in, we're staying in out of some like, it's either a, it's either, people are either in denial to think that there is a plan or any point that staying in longer will uh, will allow for better results in the long run. I don't think there's any reason to believe that at this point, but I think some people still do. Or at this point, it's just purely a way to still feel like a good person. Because you have a set of values that attach to seeing a doctor on television tell you people are getting sick, you don't want to get them sick. and That makes you want to do that. But a bunch of other people see that same thing and they see lib media telling them lies in order to hurt their president. I mean, you're saying people don't want to get sick, but like I'm saying is that it's going to happen. Unless, you have just, unless you're going to stay in like you've decided that this is your new life and you're like, fuck what anyone else does. I am staying in. If you do that, then okay. And I think for a lot of people who are immunocompromised, they're going to have to do that because it's going to be too scary to go out. But I think a lot of other people who don't have either the ability or personal constitution to put up with that they're going to go out eventually, which means they're going to get it eventually. And so, yeah, nobody wants it. But eventually it's going to be, I can stay in, but you're either going to get driven out by the market saying you need rent, you need to pay for rent, you need to have a job. Or if you can, if you, unless you can stay in because you have the ability to, Get money while indoors. You can call a commute and they'll let you do it. People are, you're not going to have that option. And it's going to become, it's going to become like a liberal uh, affectation, basically. It, like liberals will stay indoors. Uh, the, the, the artist Bat, Brad Tromel, who has a really wonderful Instagram, had an amazing and incredibly prescient uh, like visual essay a couple, about a month ago already where he talked about how we're inevitably leading to a thing where where this the persistence of covid is going to create a political caste system of people who go out on purpose as a political act and people who stay in on purpose as a political act and it's going to re reface re, reshape the face of America because it means that all liberals are going to eventually just have to go to the to the suburbs to the country to get any any space to avoid being completely cooped up uh, and conservatives are going to have to move to the city to to maintain the viability of close contact with everybody. I mean, the way to stop this is to take control of this political system, to take control of this fucking means of production, to redirect in, uh, to redirect production for use in the old, as Upton Sinclair would have said. But there's no there's no power. In, in the world that's making that happen, that's pushing for that. And, and in the short term, I don't know any way that, it, that it's going to happen. I mean, the best hope for it is just the reality of people being forced to risk their lives for minimum wage will get enough of them to say no and then to organize along 
their jobs to prevent getting sick. That's our best hope. But the problem is with so many unemployed people who are so desperate, their leverage as employees is going to be reduced too. It would have to be like sit-in strikes, like 30 shit, where you actually deny the space. You deny the capital. And we have a, we have a militarized police force now in this country that uh, is just looking for an excuse. I don't know. It's not going to be anybody's theory, that's for sure. When it happens, if it happens, it's going to be a brush fire. Like 1905 or 1917, uh, it's going to be people just deciding that they can't take enough. Because there's no plausible leadership, right? Like, what's the plausible leadership for some uh, workers' movement against this virus creating a new class system and a new... And reducing human life that much further in dignity and just quality. There's no one there. There's no one who speaks universally enough. And it's no I don't think that's anyone's fault. I mean, there's people have mistakes made mistakes all the way along the way. The Bernie campaign certainly wasn't perfect. But these social conditions are such that we have lost any working class uh conveyor belt of ideology. It's just sort of spinning off. I'm sorry, I know this is not grill pill, but the thing is, this is kind of part of my grill pill is like talking like this, you know? Like, I don't have a grill yet even. Like, this is how I deal with things. And I think it's constructive because I get feedback, you know? Uh, I think I installed the floating shelf. Yeah. Wasn't hard. Easy. I might start grilling. I have to buy one. I'm gonna, I want to get one small, though, because I don't have a lot of space back there. So it would have to probably be one of those mini ones. I don't even know if those even work. But I know I can't get a big one. It's just not enough space. I think probably charcoal, because I don't want to have to deal with getting a refillable tank and all that stuff. I think that's drywall. I think the walls are all drywall. An electric grill. That's interesting. 
I don't know. That seems like it might be too small. Yeah, I think I think what no one wants to really confront is just how we're going to have to just like we're going to have to recalibrate our relationship to huh, expecting to survive a day downward. And it's, you know, people have lived and people live in this world already in much higher levels of that than we have. Uh, and at the end of the day, it will be because we chose we chose comfort uh, over anything uh, and because our rulers have figured out a way to completely divorce themselves from consequences. I mean, you got a guy telling people at this moment, hey, you want you want a bailout? Well, people in hell want ice water. They're writing a bill, a standalone bill, to bail out lobbyists. There is not a single person of either party who is a regular human voter who likes lobbyists. Because in their mind, if there's Democrat or Republican, they imagine the evil lobbyists the other ones, the bad, the, ba the the lobbying on the wrong side of their issues that they prefer. So they still hate the concept. They could be pretty easily rallied to the idea that they don't deserve a fucking uh, bailout. But instead, it's not even an issue because both sides agree, well, we certainly have to have lobbyists. Where are we going to get jobs after this? Where are we going to get the real money that comes with governing? The actual point of any of this, the seven-figure job after we leave office, after we get primaried by... Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the yodeling kid, once he reaches the age of majority. A smokeless Korean barbecue. That's interesting. How does that work? Without smoke. Sounds mysterious. Uh, you know what? It's funny. Somebody asked, wants to know about the end of history in the 90s. Uh, you know, that was obviously a joke. Everyone made fun of Fukuyama for it, for saying we've reached the end of history, by which he meant like the forces of history had stopped moving because we'd found the ideal synthesis of the, the ideal social order in terms of long-term stability, which is capital democracy. And that eventually capital democracy would reach every country, every area, and we would create a steady state social order that would basically be peaceful over time. Uh, essentially, materialism, like dialectical materialism, teleological Marxism, but ending at capitalism instead of going forward to the next step. Uh, and of course, in the 90s, there was a sense that that was the case, that it was all over but the shouting, really, and that all the old uh, conflicts were going to be smoothed out by the market. Uh, then 9-11 happened, and of course, everyone, and now everything that's happened since, and everyone's like, you idiot, Fukuyama. But honestly, looking at things now and looking at the way that we're prepared to deal with this, looking, the, looking at the way that we're prepared, the biggest powers, the, the biggest rulers of the most powerful countries, all of which have robust democratic traditions, all of which are ostensibly republics with, with, that are ostensibly designed and exist to sustain the public happiness, to sustain public health, happiness, and safety, the whole reason you write a thing like a constitution. All of them have basically, to one degree or another, 
come forward and admitted that there, since there is no alternative to neoliberal capitalism, we are going to have to embrace death on a scale that we thought was not part of the deal anymore. We thought the whole point of having this alienated capitalist system with lives moving so fast and so desacralized and so dead and so dis devoted to distraction and amusement at the expense of death. But at least we have material comforts. At least, you know, like guys like Steve Pinker can point to a chart and say, look, extreme poverty is down. Look, life expectancy is up. Look, you know, uh, consumer spending is up. People's lives are, are getting better. We're giving that up. The one thing that was supposed to justify this continued, the continued existence of this system. We're, go, we're in the process of slowly admitting that we are giving up even that, but because we can't give up the capitalism. So in a sense, Fukuyama was right. But his, his, his framing of it was, we have created a sustained, endless system that will, because it is so beneficial over the long run, last forever. And people's lives will only get better like Ned Beatty at the end of Network. But what we're finding instead is, no, these systems now, thanks to technology most of all, and because of the brutal alienating effect of, uh, you know, of capitalism on land, geography, workplace, and culture, most importantly, uh, and, and, and in global trade networks and the displacement of, of uh, manufacturing throughout the globe, uh, the way the, the arbitraging of, of government uh, uh, authorities, authoritarian systems versus, you know, capitalist uh, um, culture stuff. It's now at a point where it is, it cannot be removed. Maybe. I'm not saying it, it is in that point because things are going to change. But it's in a situation where it can only now, it can now just say, now we're managing decline. The way we were managing uh, uh, ascent, we are now managing decline, but there is no alternative. So history is ending. History is ending, but it's ending in heat death. It's ending in the eventual dissolution and squandering of all resources as the center fails to hold and it splinters off into, you know, techno-feudalist uh, minarchies before even those fall apart. So yeah, people might want to end up. People might end up giving Fukuyama a second look, if, but he was only right in the sense that we might have reached a point where this system cannot be meaningfully inter interdicted with. Not that it's going to lead to some universal uh, peace, but rather universal war. A harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. Send this. Let's end with a song. I don't usually play these anymore because I don't want to get DCCI'd. Uh, I don't know what the rules are. Actually, I haven't done that on Twitch yet, so I won't do it. Uh, I was going to play uh, Two Dogs Dead by Cloud Dead. So if you've ever heard that song, it's got, a, it's got that Herzog quote at the end of it. All right, I'll play one song. Hopefully we'll get a warning instead of it. There's this idea.
I know I'm supposed to have an ad blocker on this thing, but I don't. And half the ads are for Masterclass. It's actually amazing to me. Okay, yeah, but if China takes over, it's just another accelerated form of uh, hyper-capitalism. If China takes over, it's just furthering the development of that system. You really think they're going back to communism? You think Mao's going to come out of the, burst out of his fucking uh, mausoleum and take back over? It's just going to be a further intensification of all the processes of, of technological uh, panopticon and, and fucking uh, hyper-exploitation and, and, and absolute knowledge of where every person is at any given moment. Oakland. I'm gonna I'm losing social credit points, I know. I know. I mean like hell, President G probably should save us from ourselves, from our like death drive of consumption. But that's just a resting collapse. It's not building something durable because their economy is just as dependent on our wild overconsumption and hyper exploitation of labor on peripheral regions of the world. There's nothing else that, that their economy works. There's no other fuel for their economy than that. And I mean, all right, say they don't need us anymore to be consumers. Well, then they need to be consumers, right? They, need, they build their own consumer economy and then they just turn themselves into us. They start consuming the way that we did. Now, I see the thing is, China's going to consume the degree to which we stop consuming. So if we just like, if we, if we just tip tap off the stave and become, you know, like a giant agricultural, uh, uh, latifundia then that's okay but we can't all be consuming at the same rate somebody's got to stop center of a serious crash. Oh, I'm going to talk about 9-11 tomorrow. A harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. All right, guys.